I'd like to call this meeting to order. Um, could I have the clerk of the floor please call the roll? Except we don't have a clerk of the board. Oh, well then I will call the roll. Uh, Michelle Lawrence is here, at least physically. Um, Joe DeVries, not present. Maria Hernandez? Present. Kinkini Banerjee? Gary Chardon, Casey Jensen, here. Anthony Hopkins, Thompson. Uh, both are here. <laughs> <laughs> Barry Zorthian. Here. Okay. <laughs> we have a quorum. Okay. Uh, I would like to. Are there any comments for public session, please? Our illustrious vice president has come in, so we'll mark him present. Uh huh. Any public comment? Okay, thank you. Um, we'll move on to the board president report, and mine is going to be very brief. I just want to remind the trustees that we have our retreat at the end of April, and um, I would like to be working with anyone who's interested, but specifically, here were some of the ideas. We really needed to talk about a planning, uh, an overall board planning calendar so that we can have all the committees kind of fit into one huge calendar as opposed to the separate committee calendar. So we have one big, what I call, issues calendar or agenda calendars. Um, so that I wanted to be able to do a whole lot at the retreat. And then talk a little bit more about a planning and evaluation cycle for the organization. Because I think we're just not on target, particularly with our the evaluation of the CEO, the development of the budget, and the goal setting process. We're just a little off on that, and so I'd like to invest some time at the retreat. But I invite any of you, we have two days, as you know, um, Friday and half a day Saturday, um, and the site is yet to be determined, but we'll get that to you right away. And um, so any ideas that any of the trustees have that they would like to um, give input to, please let me know and do it offline, and I will make certain I get it to DeVecchio and we, and we can work it through. And then uh, the other issue is to let you know that all the information, and, and you may have seen some emails relative to the board vacancy, that it has in fact been published, it's out, and I have made a call to uh, Supervisor Haggerty, uh, inviting him to, to certainly put some names forward because the vacancy is in his district and we had a commitment to make certain that we had representation across the county. So that's the status presently. Okay? And that is my, that's my report. And Del Vecchio is in Chicago. Are you, is, do we have a, uh, just a, a couple surrogate of, here? Uh, <laughs> uh, yes, just a couple of items. Uh, one, just a reminder that the Form 700s are due back to the clerk uh, of the board. And uh, I have a list here somewhere of who hasn't Ooh. turned them in. <laughs> I, I can't find it, but guilty. Uh, guilty. Uh, so if we could ensure that uh, all the trustees do uh, get those turned in as soon as they're able to. Uh, the other thing uh, that I just wanted to uh, mention to you, uh, some of you may have heard uh, about the uh, court case of City of San Jose, the Superior Court. Uh, this was a decision by the uh, California Supreme Court uh, this past Friday. And this is significant to anybody who works in or serves with the public agency. Uh, the issue in the case uh, concerned uh, the use of a private phone for 
business communications or communications related to the business of the organization. And uh, the lower court ruling had determined that um, the agency or an organization was not required to collect such communications uh, in response to a Public Records Act request. Uh, the Supreme Court uh, reversed and basically held that uh, public business is public business no matter where it's conducted, whether it's on a communication device which is issued by the organization or if it's on a personal device. And so if uh, a trustee or an employee were to conduct business uh, on their personal email account um, that related to business of the organization, if we were to receive a request for any communications along those lines, then we would be entitled to require your personal device to collect those communications. So, so we'll be preparing some guidance uh, which will you know, help or facilitate you know, implementing this decision within the organization, but I just wanted to give you the early warning of, you know, to the extent possible, uh, using you know, your uh, Alameda Health System or email address for communications and not a personal email address, and that way you can keep the two of them separate. Yeah, and the instrument that you're using is provided by the public agency or or just it, it it does not matter whether it's provided by the public agency or if it's a personal device. So if if you if you have a AHS issued laptop iPad, let's say, and you use the AHS email address, that's probably the the best of all circumstances. If you have your own phone and you use your own phone for email, um, that's probably not an issue because we would collect the email from the server as opposed from your device, but if you use your own device in your own personal email address, then I, if we got a request, you know, I would have to solicit you to go back, find all those emails and forward them on to me, that type of thing. So would that mean that each of us is going to need an email issue that is AHS specific? I don't have one. Technically, do. Okay, well. Simple enough. We'll issue that. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I believe there I, is an assignment. I answer one, email we'll on my that. business, my personal business account. But if we could still do that, but you might have, it should something come up, you might have to request those records. Is that yes. what you're saying? And yes. text. Should I have said, call me about the retreat? I just, I'm trying to understand how this works. Uh, I'm not sure. Well, I, uh, earlier I said, you know, send me an email about what you want for the retreat, and right. is it better than to start now using telephone? Uh, no, I don't think that this, you know, requires a, a change in mode of communication. I think it's just understanding that, you know, what's accessible or what's subject to the coverage of the, uh, the public records. <coughs> I think that there, you know, certainly was a belief that if it was a personal device and it was a personal email yeah. account, that that was not included. But this clarifies that yes, in fact, that is included. Wow. Okay. So, so the first thing that happened would have to happen, though, is that there be some reason why they would want that. Yes. Person. Yes, if there's a request. Yeah. Seems somewhat. I, I think you're asking, you're stating, this is a device agnostic request. If it's correspondence related to the business of AHS, That's we must relinquish that information, whether it is an email or voicemail or text. That's correct. If subpoenaed. Well, yeah. not if subpoenaed. If, 
if there is a request. No, if it's, if there is a request for the information, so it can be a request. Public that's information not a subpoena. request. Right. It could be a request from the Public Records Act that would cause it to be. So, and that does not necessarily, or should we assume that that means relinquishing our actual device, or does it mean relinquishing the emails, text, and voicemail? It, well, it's the information, you know, because okay. the, it's so the records um, that would be the subject of the request. Okay. okay. Is this um, applied to every employee in the, or just for um, confidential form 700? Um, no, it, it applies to any records of the organization, and so it could be any employee if, if there is a record which is identifiable to a particular employee. So if it's all communications regarding X, then it would be you know, the records of any employee who might have that information. Yeah. It doesn't well, that was cheering. <laughs> That's it, it. Is that all? That's Thank all. You. Can I? Uh, yes, sir. Uh, I just, uh, Mr. Finley just sent me an email that he regrets missing today's meeting, he's in Chicago, the American Hospital Association, convening with fellow executive for metropolitan health systems, discussing and learning about healthcare trends, coverage design, and policy updates that have potential to impact our organization and the communities we serve. So that's the first point. Second point, uh, as you all may be aware, as of this afternoon, the House of Representatives began discussion on the Affordable Care Act replacement bill. Uh, published yesterday. Among other things, this new plan would roll back expansion of Medicaid and further reduce funding for the program. The bill does include some subsidies to help people afford coverage, but these advanced tax breaks are significantly less than the subsidies offered under the Affordable Care Act. Both House Committees of Jurisdiction, Energy and Commerce and Ways and Means have advanced the proposed American Health Care Act out of these committees. Republican congressional leaders have expressed the goal of getting the conciliation bill approved by the April recess. The bill faces opposition from Democrat and more conservative Republican legislators in the House and the Senate, so it's not entirely clear that it will be approved as is. The third point, uh, Mr. Finley is happy to report that the RFP for the system-wide electronic health record was released on schedule yesterday to Epic and Cerner, and the response is expected by April 3rd. Great, great. I, I heard today uh, Speaker Ryan trying to explain that that the um, the healthy pay for the sick, and it dawned on me. I wonder if he understands how insurance works because that's what cars do, that's what houses do. That's what, I mean, I just thought this is beyond me. That, but okay, enough. Sorry. Okay, we're going to move to action item. Um, can I have a motion? Is there any anything on action C that someone would like to pull off specifically to discuss? Or may we? Is that the one that has the okay thing? Yeah. No. Oh. Yeah. Yes, it is. It does. So I need to yes, recuse myself from that. So we, we, we can pull, pull that, that one? Pull that one. Uh -huh. and then. Uh, I'm not certain what item it was. Do you a. know? A is the item with okay. Great. Thank you. Okay. Yeah, so let's pull A. And can I have a motion for second? Thank you. Thank you. All those in favor uh, approving the consent calendar with the exception of A? Aye. Aye. Thank Aye. you. 
Um, and I included the minutes in there, but could I have a motion to approve the minutes so it's clear in the record? So moved. Uh -huh. Thank Second. you. All in favor? Aye. Thank you very much. Barry, would you like to step out? Well, and so the record should reflect that Trustee Zorthine is excusing herself from the meeting at this time. Thank you. I just, since we pulled this, um, there's been no changes, just to, to um, ask David, I guess. This has not changed from when we saw it at the last meeting, the Oak Care contract. It's the same terms as uh, the old terms, but right. we are working on the new contract. So we asked for three months ex extension to finalize the, mm -hmm. the new contract. We're making progress. Okay, great. I move approval. Second. Thank you. All in favor? Aye. Aye. Great. Thank you. And now we're going to move to uh, action item D. And uh, I'm going to get the doctor. Oh, yes, thank you. Vanessa's getting in from Nicole. Yes, thank you. Vanessa's getting And uh, our Vice President of Strategic Planning, Ashwari, would you like to begin? Yes, thank you. Thank you. Um, good evening, everyone. I'm here to present the business case and the uh, plan for establishing a primary care medical office in the Alameda service area. Um, I will walk you through uh, the rationale for doing this and also the market uh, analysis we did that justified the demand for this proposal, as well as the um, options we considered, the pro forma, and the recommendations we have. Um, developing a primary care medical office in the um, geography that we're considering will really support HS's long-term commitment to population health. So this plan is based on the foundation of moving towards population health. And establishing a primary care uh, medical office in this geography will provide Alameda access to a much-needed primary care network, which I'll talk to you in detail a little bit about the market demand that justifies this. And we're building this plan really to be concurrent with our uh, population health principles, which I've attached as a supplemental slide for you all to review, which is included in our strategic plan, to address all aspects of care and provide this foundation, uh, which also includes addressing the social determinants of health um, that are unique and specific to this geography. So we, when we um, saw this business case need, we started this by doing an analysis of what the market demand is. The geography that we are talking about is two zip codes. And we looked at the population here. It's expected to grow moderately uh, at 5% over the next five years. However, the need about uh, when we did a physician supply demand analysis, we did this by considering what is the population makeup in this geography? What are their disease um, uh, factors? And how is this pop that percent of that population expected to grow? and stack that up against the available primary care physicians that are currently practicing here, we see that there is an immediate need of at least a seven primary care physicians, and this need will only grow over the next five years, and we estimate that to be at least 10 primary care physicians uh, over the next five years. We then did a further analysis to say, who are these primary care physicians? And we found out that only 31% are significant percent, 70, about 70% of these providers currently practicing are already affiliated to other networks. 
And um, one of our analysts actually called each of these providers to see if they're accepting new Medicare, our patients. And um, we found out that 54% of the providers are not accepting. So this really builds the business case even more. And we also know internally for us that we know that this service area with our hospital here has seen declining volumes. And this is also um, really impacting our ability to gain uh, commercial con contracts. So all this really establishes the business case and immediate need. And I also failed to mention that we, over the last year, lost a primary care provider who was practicing in this area, which really how, is how this business case uh, came to be and we developed this further. So our proposed plan, as I mentioned at the outset, is really to, um, really from a philosophical perspective, to integrate our population health guidelines to develop a comprehensive approach to care, including addressing the social determinants. And to do so, we are recommending that we leverage the focused practice management infrastructure that we've set up with Alameda Health Partners and hire two primary care providers in this geography to immediately begin operations as a primary care medical office. Um, we expect the anticipated pair mix. We've calculated this and we built that into our pro forma. And we currently have a location that's available to us that is, was where our one of our um, uh, practices was located in Marina Village, and that location is available to us. It's already got set up with exam rooms to staff. All we have to do is a little bit of work to um, fit it to suit a primary care office. We built that into the pro forma as well. And we are confident that once we can hire the staff and the physicians that we could begin operations uh, as early as the start of uh, next fiscal year. So while doing this, we considered uh, what are the, you know, how could we structure this? As you all are aware, our wellness centers are set up as FQHCs, and this provides a reimbursement that's uh, suitable, and you can see the pro forma on how that plays out between an FQHC model and a non-FQHC model. Given the immediate need and knowing that uh, requesting for us to get in scope, there are several considerations. I've listed those. I won't spell those out. Uh, that it might take time, it will take time to do so, we would be considering the second approach, but we would recommend we start as a primary care physician office, get this going, and then we would work with the county and see if this would um, be a, a reasonable approach to take as an FQHC. So I've provided a summary pro forma, but I've also provided a detailed pro forma to walk you through how we built this model. So there are some key assumptions that I'd like to walk you through so uh, you can understand how the pro forma is built. Uh, you're seeing two columns here, um, and really the one is the first, first set is the non-FQHC model, which is the one we're proposing, and the second is the FQHC. Um, we base this on, as you uh, saw earlier, the pair mix is primarily Medi-Cal, which is our alliance partners. We've been working closely with them. We, they are aware of this plan and are very supportive of this because they are obviously also looking at the need and, uh, and happy that we, could, we are proposing a plan to hire two primary care providers. So we um, established a panel size that we are uh, familiar with that is our model that's used across our wellness centers and, and, and really that's the factor that you're seeing here which establishes the volume. The revenue side is just a simple calculation based on the payer mix and what we expect to uh, receive from our payers. 
On the expense side, um, it's the expense of hiring two primary care practitioners and the staffing needed to support that, which includes um, MAs and a practice manager and, some, uh, and a receptionist. And our other expenses that are built into this model are um, exactly modeled on our actual expenses, and we've used our internal metrics as a baseline for compare, comparing that. So you're really, and then we also have some additional capital expenses, which I mentioned earlier at the outset, was really to um, uh, do some TI work and, and also to support an integrated uh, IT platform, currently NextGen, so we need some licenses purchased to do that. Uh, so we've factored those capital one-time startup expenses. Um, uh, comparing the two models, both models, when they are completely um, operating at full capacity, which we expect over a course of three years to happen, and we've built a very conservative approach to do so. Um, this first year, we are really just um, built, we've built in um, our two practitioners seeing an average of about 4.7 patients a day, which is really not a lot. Our model, um, you know, typically it could be anywhere from 13 to 20 for a very uh, well-functioning practice. Um, and we've also factored in a no-show rate that we are currently used to experiencing. So we've built all those in. We've worked with the alliance. We're confident of the numbers of patients that they can assign to us. And using all that, you can see that the pro forma, um, as we ramp this up to full capacity in year three, both models will break even. But the return on investment is significantly more for the FQHC. But given the need uh, with the demand that's existing today, we are recommending that we start with the first approach and then phase in potentially down the road. So really in summary, our considerations here are we are proposing this model uh, to start a primary care medical office um, um, and, and um, we are recommending that we explore the option to really establish this immediately as a uh, regular primary care medical office and we would work um, to see what the parameters are uh, to get in scope uh, down the road. Happy to answer any questions or? Maria, I'm sorry, I missed this at the beginning because I was looking for the packet. Where is this going to be located? Yes, thank you for the question. This is in Marina Village. This is where our old bone and joint center was located. And um, my follow-up to that is, um, how far would be the next FQHC? From that location, do you know where the distance would be for that? I don't know the exact. I know our analysts did that, um, um, and I don't remember the exact <coughs> number of miles. Is it Asian? It, it might be, be Chinatown. Is Asian. What we're, I think I would think so. Or there's actually Native American Health Center, which has a location out on uh, off of Fruitvale. That. No, not Fruitvale. <coughs> It's on the way to Alameda. Uh, they're behind the airport, that road that goes that way. Alameda. Well, this is on the west end. Correct. Mm -hmm. right. yeah. this, so this the closest closer. thing would be in um, Chinatown. Oh, okay. okay. Thank you. Any other board questions? Yeah, I, is, is the idea of uh, waiting on the FQAC because it takes longer to start as an FQAC, is that is that yeah, the yeah. logic? Yes. Okay. So the, the three-year projection is... You know, you have one based on FQ. Like, is it realistic if we if we start? What when when would you suggest we would attempt to get the FQHC status? We would work immediately to obtain and that potential. And how long does that normally take? 
years. Years. Okay. Yeah, and, and and I think it should be pointed out that you know one of the considerations as to whether or not to even you know pursue uh, having this designated as FQAC is that there are special governance requirements for federally qualified health centers, and so depending upon the model that was selected for this, if it was not going to be part of the FQHC network, which is currently in place, then there would have to be a separate board, a governing board set up mm -hmm. to oversee the work of this clinic. So that's a consideration <coughs> that might very well decide the question of what we might look to do. So, um, so realistically, I'm sorry, so realistically, it wouldn't be an FQHC in these first three years. So the, the left-hand projections are, are, are solid, the right-hand ones are yeah, but I mean, if we could have ultimately get to FQHC, great, but, yeah. Uh, and thank you for that question. And none of the committee members who are on finance happened to be here today. So uh, Anthony was absent, Gary's gone, and Kinkinney is. So um, this was vetted quite significantly at finance, and um, all of us were in agreement that it was definitely a need. There was no question about the desire to get it there. Um, we did feel, and, uh, and I say this, we did feel that the, um, the three-year profitability may, may be a bit um, optimistic, a bit optimistic. <laughs> but I've argued with David before on his, on his predictions and always lost. So, uh, well, maybe once or twice I won, but mostly I lost. Um, but nevertheless, I say that because when, when we got into San Leandro and we all recognized the importance of San Leandro, there tended to be this hurry to make a profit right away. And there were many of us that said, it's going to take time, it's going to take time. So I just, I just think that the Finance Committee recognized that this is going to take time, but we're very committed to making certain that it does happen. So I give you that, that piece of information. Uh, and we did take a great deal of time at the committee to talk about it. We think the timing is right for this. I mean, I want to own a vegetable stand every time Del Vecchio goes on the island of Alameda for, for sale to throw at him. Our reputation isn't the best. Um, and I was kind of surprised when I read it in the finance packet on my plane back from Oklahoma um, that we're doing this now when we still have significant exposure on our insurance issues. And granted, Ford still builds smart cars, small cars after the Pinto blew up. Um, but I'm just wondering if our timing isn't, uh, we need to wait. So, and I haven't seen any data about. Yeah, I, I think it's time. I mean, it's an underserved community. We have a big investment in the acute care hospital that is having trouble uh, attracting patients because of lack of a primary care network. Um, <clears throat> payer mix is going to be about 60%. Uh, we know from the alliance that they need providers there. Um, I think it's going to be very well. So you think regardless of our exposure, they will come? And our reputation on the island at the moment. Um, I think there's a there's a need for primary care physicians. Do, so can they, I, they do we know how many exist on the island? Yes, uh, we, we, we do. do yeah. uh, the supplemental slides have the uh, analysis. I believe there are 23, if I remember the number, Stanford, on the yeah. island. And so right. we've done the actual analysis of who's currently providers, who are currently providers located across those mm -hmm. two zip codes, mm -hmm. and what the need is. And again, if I might reiterate, we have a need for at least seven today expected to grow, and many of them are full and aren't accepting our patients. And we had a provider leave this geography last year who was
was, um, you know, a lawyer, was an AHS lawyer provider. Oh, I believe the data and I believe the market's there. I just don't know if they'll come to us based on our reputation at the moment. That was my question. Well, isn't it true that the, 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 the providers that are currently upset with our contract situation aren't necessarily taking this Medi-Cal, Medicare population. So the 68% Medicare, Medi-Cal, these are different patients. Totally get that. Yeah. But our reputation goes beyond, you know, I spend a lot of well, my life in Remember, this, oh, is, this is Alameda Health Partners, not, not HS. It's not, it doesn't say FQHC. It's going to look like a doctor's office. Oh. We have an orthopedic practice there that's being used by commercial payers. And, uh, commercial payers will support the primary. Okay. That's what they, that's what they go no, if I were so smart, I wouldn't be a banker. So that's bad. So, <laughs> can I? These primary care, this primary care physician group, could be part of a network or be um, be paid if we were to enter into those contracts that we've been waiting for for some time. With um, particularly with Anthem, for example, if we yes. were to enter into a contract, these providers could take take patients from. Yes the Anthem, um, who have Anthem coverage, and then they would get coverage at Alameda Hospital. And um, I, I'm i very happy to see this happening because I know that in Alameda we've lost, in the past five years, we've lost our two major um, primary care groups, and which is one of the reasons Dave and I have talked at length why commercial contractors are reluctant to um, enter into contracts because they don't have a lot of... Um, they don't, there's not a big need there, and they have other their, their primary care groups are contract or um, are have um, using other facilities, and they're not they're actually in the case of Stanford they are prohibited from using Alameda without a, the patients paying a big um, big penalty. So I think that this is good for both Alameda Health Partners really because it'll kind of get our name out there, to your point, Anthony, and, and for the island and for Alameda Hospital in particular, just um, the, the Medi-Cal, you know, Anthony probably recognized this too. I mean, there will be people um, who formerly use the hospital or community members who pay the parcel tax who say, oh, no, you know, all those Medi-Cal beneficiaries, if, if they saw this report. But I personally see the Medicare and the commercial, and I see this improving. And I, um, with regard to the FQHC, politically, you know, having worked in Washington for 10 years and for CMS I, and seeing the new administration, I'm not seeing that there's going to be a lot of move towards approving new, you know, there's not going to, this administration isn't going to go out of its way yeah. to approve yeah. public yeah. health, um, federally qualified health centers. And mm -hmm. so I think we should definitely move in this direction. And also, um, just as an aside, the, the, um, there is activity and movement, and by 20... 19, or as possibly 2019, but more likely 2020, there will be a veterans um, outpatient veterans clinic close by to this. Um, yeah, the old name. And yes. yeah, and so there would be a network yeah. available. Oh, that's interesting. That's interesting. Okay, are we ready for a vote? Any more questions? No. I, I move to all seconds. Okay. Second, do can I have a motion to approve? All those in favor? Aye. Aye. Thank you. Okay. Um, and we move to our uh, report. Can I ask a question uh, before we do that? I, I wondered why we have the information uh, in our packet about the wellness center. Yeah. We do. We have on in our packets 
the Eastmont Wellness Center? Was that a mistake? No, that goes with item on the consent agenda, item, the last item on the consent oh. agenda. Renewing the lease for the next lease. 10 years. Oh, I see. Like okay, that. so that was, okay, thank you. Thank you. And, and just, is it the case that we did not get this handout in our packet? No, I it's there. Oh, it's all right. I'll you mean, you mean this, the EHR selection process? No, 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 no the presentation that what we just What Ishwari just gave us? Ishwari. Ishwari. No, it's there. I'm sorry. I love the demographics. I will look. Thank you. Yeah. I found it. I just didn't go far enough. Yeah, okay. it's, it's farther than I thought it would be. Yeah. Okay. And uh, are we ready to move to the update on our health records? Yes. Thank okay. you, trustees. Uh, this evening, uh, first, let me introduce the team that's been working on this. As you heard from Evecchio's report, the RFP went out yesterday uh, to Cerner and Epic. Both of them uh, have received it. We had, it was sent a certified email, right? So we had received when they opened it. So we know both of them have received it. Um, so let me introduce the team that's been working on this. Uh, first, Jim Kalivas is our is our lead from Foley and Larder, our legal firm that's working us through the RFP. He'll be doing the presentation tonight to update you on what's going on with the RFP and kind of the structure of the entire thing. Uh, but there's two other members here that are key to this whole process uh, in making this all happen. One, uh, Dr. Dave English is our Chief Medical Information Officer. Uh, Dave's been working diligently with what we've called the EHR Selection Committee, which is that team of about 100 people that put together all the specifics of the RFP and what are the necessary features and functions that we need in the system. Uh, next to him is Katya Osipova. Katya is our Project Director over the EHR project, and so she led the IT long-range plan, project managing that, working with Lighthouse closely on putting all of that, uh, the plan together to get there, and now she's leading our EHR selection process, and so that's uh, been her role on this. Uh, this team has done fabulous work to get the RFP out the door yesterday. Um, as you'll see from Jim, uh, it, is a, it is a large document. I saw it. That it went was out. huge. So with that, I'll turn it over to Jim to uh, do the presentation and, and educate you around this process. Thanks, Dave, and, and thank you for having me here and for allowing me to work with this great team on this important initiative. Um, I just um, wanted to give you a little background on um, who, why I'm here and why you have a lawyer involved as deeply as you do in the, in the procurement process, et cetera, because it's not necessarily a, a typical path. Um, and um, talk a little bit about the EHR transaction structure um, let you know about how we went and developed it as a team, and I, I can't thank you know Katja and Dr. English and all the people at, at Alameda um, have really been digging in. Um, so it's been it's been a real positive experience since I've been on board uh, for sure. Um, then just talk about some key dates, the RFP, and um, key issues to to think about going forward. So um, I've been a lawyer for 35 years. I started as a litigator. Um, and at one point, um, back in the 80s, um, started litigating when uh, computer systems failed. And I kept having these cases come with failed computer systems and kept talking to the clients and saying, look, look you're going to pay me more to litigate this than you can win because your contract's so bad. So that started this whole practice. And so for 25 years, I've been doing technology transactions. And over that whole period of time, we've been... I'd like to say my firm and my group, we've been students of this whole process and we've seen the, the, the problems with these system implementations and so many companies spending a lot of money and not getting the value that they 
um, sunk in to, to, to get back, not getting the return. So we've looked at every piece, and, and part of what we saw was a problem was that the RFP process itself. Because often people would go out and they'd ask for costs. They'd ask for, you know, do you do this and do you do that? And vendors would say, oh, sure we do this, sure we do this, and here's the cost. But there was nothing binding the vendors to that particular proposal that they made. There was nothing that, that um, put the whole thing together and said, this is what it's really going to take to do this. And your number has to fit doing all these things. So that when you get around the table, not hearing, well, we didn't know that, we didn't know this, and, and this number kind of keeps escalating. So longer story short, um, after you know doing billions of dollars of deals for some you know great companies, we've been very privileged to work both in healthcare and in the private sector in terms of you know, companies like Coca-Cola and Raytheon and, and Charles Schwab and, and The Gap. Um, we've done some, um, and, and then large healthcare organizations like the County of Los Angeles and, and um, you know, Mayo Clinic and, and um, Memorial Health Services down south and Presbyterian. And frankly, my first big contract was uh, the city and county of San Francisco. Um, and they did in 1994. They, um, I was writing about these issues as a litigator, and they said, we want you to do our deal. I said, I don't do deals. And they said, we'll find somebody to help you. So anyway, long story short, lots of experience with these transactions, lots of EHRs, seeing them succeed, I've seen them fail, and what we um, were hired to do is help you to spot the, the holes and spot the problems up front try to identify and fill those holes as best we possibly can to position you guys for a successful EHR implementation. So that's the, the beginning part. What, what we have done, one of the things we've done, as you can see in this, I'm going to jump actually to, um, oh, let me, let me hit this. But what we've done is we've integrated and we put in the RFP that you'll see is like all those 50 documents. We put the whole agreement that we want them to sign uh, along with the, the requests for requirements and pricing and SLAs and, and exactly how the, the implementation will go forward so we can get a true apples to apples comparison from these vendors about their price and their performance and what, what they're willing to do and what they're not willing to do. Um, and so the way we structure this is very integrated so that the, the main agreement connects with the pricing, connects with the statement of work, connects with the, the SLAs so that you're not bouncing around with, these are often built um, with separate groups. Legal builds this and the, the, the clinicians build that and the technologists build this and they're not, they're not cohesive. So we've, over time, developed a model that is very, very cohesive, very integrated, all the different elements, so that you can actually have that discussion and say, no, you promised to do this, and here it is. And how did you, how did, what was the process? How did you, Dave's told us a bit, but yeah. how did you ensure that those things were? Yeah, so, so well, I mean, the, the first, the, the, when, way back when the city and county of San Francisco hired us, the good news was I hadn't done a lot of technology deals, and they knew that. I litigated them, but I hadn't done it. So we got to build it from scratch, this whole concept of you are doing the system, and the system is very big, and you are providing the services, capital S services, which are very, very broad, and you are going to provide that system and these services for this price. 
and we go into great detail um, in terms of like the statement of work, in terms of how it's going to be done, making clear all the different elements and, and that, that they're going to have to do. That detail is there, but then services also provides us protection that if we've missed something from the list, like if you ask the contractor to build a bedroom and they left the closet out, we've got protection that, no, we asked for a bedroom and, and a closet is a part of what goes in a bedroom and you should have put that in there. We've got those kind of protections. And then we have incredibly detailed pricing models um, that help to structure the payment flow to delivery of the services on time so that you've got control of what's happening. You know when they're supposed to get paid. You have approval processes before they get paid. Um, and we have a very, very rigid limit on how this agreement can be modified. Um, so it's not one of these, oh, well, we forgot about this, or we forgot about that. And, and, so, and it was built with trial and error, really, over time, right? For 25 years, we've been getting ready for your RFP, basically. Um, with some of the biggest companies in the world, we have evolved this, and some of the, the best um, technology people, some of the best uh, clinicians, some of the best um, uh, finance people, that's how we got there. I'm sorry, did that, let me just, did that answer your question? Um, I was really interested in, when, I, I, I was confused when you used the pronoun we. I didn't know whether the we was your company or the we is our institution, our oh. system. And so I'm interested to figure out how how the RFP, Oh. well, well I understand you right. have this template that you right. develop over right, some right. 25 years. Right, right. How, what was the process so that the RFP meets the needs of our system? And then I was going to ask you, Dave, about what is your scoring mechanism so that as they come in, what are the biggest priorities in the organization relative to the response to these, to this, and maybe that's built into the thing. So yeah. that's what so, I was Okay, so. Well, what, what, oh, I'm sorry, Chase. Yeah. Yeah. Can you just also talk about what we have, where we've been before and how this RP is evolved or different or what we what you've seen from our our prior systems that might not have been optimal that how this RP has has been addressing those issues. Yeah, so we did um, so again this hats off to the team. When I came on board, they gave me the briefing on the history, and I obviously did research myself on some of the issues that you'd have with systems. They're not uncommon to other issues that other people have had with systems when there's, you know, frankly, um, these are extraordinarily difficult projects. Even in the, 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 the most mature organizations have challenges with these projects. Um, and. Um, one of the things you'll hear me talking about is is the understanding of the internal um, enterprise commitment and resources that are needed to be successful. And it's beyond the vendor, right? It's beyond the vendor, and we'll talk about that. But what we did was, um, Lidos and, um, and AHS had been working together for several months, um, doing some great work, and we leveraged all of that. Um, and we worked as a, a, a very a good team together with the AHS team and Lidos, um, all the work that the physicians did over time, identifying the requirements that they needed and wanted. Um, when we click through the RP, you'll see there's 
uh, 35, I think, different requirement statements that our physicians, AHS, worked with David English and Katja to put together. There's going to be scripts that our physicians working with Dr. English and Katja and Lidos have put together for the demonstrations that are going to capture that. Um, and those are, um, that, that's all kind of, that's all AHS specific content that was, that was built. Then we melded that with our approaches to um, identifying and helping you um, distinguish between the vendors because um, just having, frankly, you're not going to be able to make a bad decision with these two vendors. I'm telling you that they are both incredible vendors. They, they have systems that are top of the line. The issue for you is going to be making, it won't be making a bad choice, it's going to be making the right choice for AHS. Which one of these vendors responds to the RFP in a way that best fits all the specific issues that you have, everything from the system functionality to um, pricing and sustainability and staffing. And you're going to be looking at all those things. And that's going to provide you the data as a system to decide which of these really good systems is the right one for AHS. And, and what our approach does in addition to all the, the drill down that your teams did, is we also ask these questions that help you differentiate. So we'll say, you know, in the last three implementations um, of similar size and, and, and scale to AHS, you know, what were the biggest challenges you had? How did you deal with those challenges? What were the lessons learned? And how have you changed your processes based on those lessons? We're trying to move it out from a marketing person responding to just giving us the stuff that they gave to everybody else, right? And move it out from a marketing person to getting somebody who's actually knowledgeable about implementations so that we can test some of their thinking and their approach to some key issues. And there's a lot of those thought questions that are baked into this as well. Um, so we have Quantitative questions, do you do this, yes, no, you know, what scale. We have um, qualitative questions, trying to separate how, how um, good they are. We have the entire agreement with all the accountability um, and the service levels we expect and the way we expect it to be delivered so that we are, again, when they give us a number, we know and see the other changes they're taking. They may be saying, well, we'll give you this number, but we're not going to agree to any meaningful accountability or warranties or, um, you know, a fixed fee or whatever. You know, all these different things will come out. We'll know, which will all be captured in the question that you asked um, to, to, to Dave in the scoring. We have a scoring model. We have uh, very um, concrete response forms that they have to fill out for each of these components of the RFP. We have a model that we've used and, and worked with Lidos and the AHS team to kind of, um, you know, objectively score and weight the different elements of their response. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry, Ms. Jensen, did I get your question and respond to your question? Yeah. I'm sorry. Yes, well, you well, let me and when you talked about uh, Lidos, that was, yeah, that was part, pretty much my question was that Lidos, in collaboration, Lidos. Lidos. Yeah. What yeah. did they do? And yeah, so, yeah, so Lidos is the ones that work with us on the IT long range plan. And so as we worked through that plan, what Dr. English and Katya did with Lidos, Phil Gelda, who's not here tonight, but another key member of the team, 
I'll work with them to kind of work on what's their current state, identifying their current state, which gets at how are things working today, and then talking about their ideal future state and what the kind of things they want to see the system do, and then map that back to the series of questions that Lighthouse was able to put together to help us identify this is the kind of things we should be asking about. And that's what went into the, the very large document that Jim will be sharing. Right, and so you and Lighthouse work and, and our team all Hand together. in hand. Yeah, no, it was, a very, it was a great collaboration so far, and I expect it to continue. And, and, and like I said, the, the team, well, you'll see, there's more to it. Um, yeah. I, let so, me add also, Jim, on this yeah. one piece. I, I think the difference between this and other contracts we've had before is before we bought product and time and materials and services. And I think with what Jim's proposing and bringing forward here is buying an outcome. Right, so it's not about we're going to buy software. We're going to buy a system that helps us care for our patients. And that's the difference, I think, that this really this approach brings uh, to the agreement that as we send this out to the vendors, they know this is the agreement we're asking you to sign. Right? This is the outcome we want, and we want you to sign up to, to deliver this outcome. So, so before you begin uh, drilling down, it might be helpful for you to draw an analogy for us about the level of customization for software of this nature because probably all of us have installed Windows 10 or Windows 98. Yeah. And it comes with a whole bunch of things. And you turn them on or you turn them off and you decide to use this feature or not. I'd like to just get a sense of um, how customized uh, this software is because quite frankly, don't, don't we already have some information about how this software, each of these, uh, uh, plays itself out in a number of hospital environments and gee, let's ask them how it yeah. went and what's so different about our utilization that's gonna make those findings any different. So if you like Windows 10, go install it, yeah. right? And I'll tell you all about it. But if you don't like it, go back to 98. Yeah. You can't do that anymore anyway. But please help us understand yeah. the level of customization. That's a great question. Um, and, um, and you, you know, the, the good news is you guys are at the end of the train on this. You're not at the beginning of the train, right? Um, most organizations have an EHR in place that um, there's a lot of choices, and I won't call it customization. There are adaptations that you can do with each of these systems. But, and, and again, I won't be a slave to these slides, but we have, we within the IT steering committee, within the committee that Dr. English chairs, and within a group that we formed with a number of executives called the EHR Working Group, which many of the people around this table, and Dr. Jamaluddin is graciously agreed to, to, to drive, um, we've already decided, look, this is going to be a vanilla implementation. That's what we're calling it. We're not going to do a bunch of customization. Mm -hmm. Each of these vendors has a system that works. We're going to take that system and we're going to implement it with the adaptations that we need to make it work for us, but not customization. And that includes taking the vendor's workflows because they that's why you're going with one of these leading vendors in the world on electronic health record systems. These things have been evolved over decades now and have been put in in leading institutions around the world. And frankly, you don't have a better way of doing it. You might think you do, but you don't. 
And so some of the lessons learned that we have over time is don't try to think, don't think you're a better software developer than these vendors. That's what you're selecting. You're selecting their uh, intelligence and their design and their software, and, the, and that part of that is that workflow. Now, there's still a heck of a lot of work to adapt that to make it fit within your organization, address your scheduling and other issues. There's still a lot of things that go on. But the, but the big fight, and the one that a lot of organizations lose, is this feeling that they're going to change this to make it work, or they're going to capture the workflows that they had today in the system of tomorrow. And that's just crazy. That's just, you're going to fail. So the group has already made Come to that, that decision, decision um, as an important kind of tenant, part of the vision, is that we're going to have an enterprise build. We're going to use the workflows from the vendors. Um, and part of the selection, why it's so important, is to make sure that that build and that workflow from those vendors are, are the ones that we think will be the easiest to adapt for us. Um, and then we're going to implement it. Downstream, we might build in some optimization effort. There might need to be some changes after people use it for a while. But we're not going to shackle the initial implementation with a bunch of spinning on trying to improve their product. We're going to put their product in. So that's all built into the vision and, and where we're going with that. Did, did that. did that hit your question? That's getting there, yeah, sure. Mm -hmm. uh, what what was in the RFP? What was the commitment for um, in-service and implementation support, um, and how long was that process? Well, that that we're asking the, asking them those questions of what, what's your implementation process and plan, and then as part of a really it's like oh, buying that outcome is tell us what it takes for your resources to do this, uh, or what what we will pay you to do to implement that system. And so, and what are you requiring from us to implement that system? So we know that ahead of time. So it's not a discussion later around, oh, we didn't know that, or we didn't know we needed to build a closet in the bedroom. Uh, no, it was in there from the beginning. We're going to have to have a closet in here because it's part of the bedroom. Now, whose responsibility is that? Your responsibility or our responsibility to build that closet? Because it needs so to be done. So that's as part the of the RFP. RFP. That, that yes, was it's part of the total so response the, that will be given. Total yes. response. Right. We have a 130-page what we call statement of work that does exactly what. Dave's talking about that lays out each stage from design to build to test to deploy to train to you know maintenance and, and, and support. And of the two companies that uh, that you said are are the strongest, w which ones have the interface <coughs> with with Alameda County and the other agencies, the other major organizations within the Bay Area? So Both the way, of them do. So the way we've addressed that is there's a specific portion of the RFP around interoperability. That's the term that talks about how do you communicate with others. And so we'll see how they respond, right? That the requirement is interoperability. Uh -huh. The question is, how does your company do that with others that we know in the area as okay. uh, other hospitals and clinics within the, within the region? Okay. Because I was having the same question. I mean, we already know who uses the, these different vendors right now, right? Mm -hmm. So that's why we're going, that's why we're getting, oh, there he is. Oh, oh there he is. Uh, so that... Uh, so we're assuming a certain level of interoperability to begin with. Yes. Well, we have the expectation of interoperability, and that's why we're talking to these two vendors, because we know they play in that sandbox. But on that note, it won't, won't, whether that gets used will, will be dependent on how our relationship with those other 
provided, right? And that's another part of that. That's not a technical question. Um, th that's true, although we already have relationships with those other partners, right? We send patients over to Children's Hospital. We send patients to UCSF and Stanford, et cetera, to get services out of all of our facilities because we may not have that capacity to handle it. We may not have that, that specific physician specialty that's needed. Right. So we do interact with, with all of those players in the community. And the records problem that you have now is being addressed in the RFP, like this has to work. That interoperability, right? It's a requirement of the, of the RFP. So did those other providers help give us input to our RFP? Uh, yes. And there's an app for that. So don't we have, through Eddie, some exchange of information even across platforms that are not necessarily yeah, it, it's very limited, right? Yes. In what gets sent, and it doesn't get consumed into the medical record like we're asking for an interoperability. So Eddie is simply a report that comes through that kind of says, "Here's yes, I know who that patient is, here's where they've been over the last six months, and here's generally what they were presenting for as their problem. But, but my, my assumption is that, uh, and this is great that we're going to have interoperability, um, but my assumption is that there's going to be a continued evolution of apps to meet these challenges because as we're sitting here, I can just imagine some coders thinking of this too. So I, I'm more concerned, quite frankly, um, that this uh, purchase, as you've described, the workflows as they exist, we're buying vanilla, not trying to customize not trying to change anything. I'm, I'm more concerned about how much of a dramatic shift people will have to make in order to use the version that we purchase. Mm -hmm. So what what is the level, and we don't know that yet, I'm, I know that, but my, my anxiety is, does this create such a systemic change in the way work gets done that we start to lose a lot of Productivity or engagement because it's so complicated. So this is really, uh, you know, very important, and we share your anxiety. I mean, it has been done throughout the nation. Yeah. This is probably going to be the most challenging uh, transformation that we are going to go through, and this is not a change in the way of doing documentation. This is a change in the transformation of care. Uh, and uh, yes, we face, we have different generations right now taking care of patients at different levels mm -hmm. and they react uh, differently. But uh, this is part of the RFP is that we don't want to put a pilot to uh, fly an airplane before doing a safe simulation or enough safe simulation or competency-based training. And this is really what we need to do. So it is going to be stress on the system it is going to be a challenge in terms of uh, standardizing horizontally the care and integrating the care throughout the system. And it is going to eliminate a lot of systems that will be of no value added currently. Uh, but once we get over this, we are going to transform our care for the patients. Mm -hmm. But the journey is, is tough. It's going to be very tough. You're absolutely right. And then uh, talking about customization after we go into this, uh, the interface, like as a physician, I can do my workflow in terms of how I see things. Mm -hmm. I can do this, but I cannot change the standard of care. 
So how the patient <coughs> is entered into the emergency room in Alameda Hospital mm -hmm. in San Leandro in Highland is going to be one way, one standard. Mm -hmm. And the same thing is going to happen mm -hmm. through the output process of patient's flow. So, uh, Dave, oh, would, excuse no, me. Would, would you talk a little bit about about the next step? So we, I know you, they've got two weeks to respond to the RFP. Then it'll take you how long to um, make your bring the committee back together to make the choice? Um, so talk a little bit about what we can expect as we go through this. Yeah. Jim, I think you've got the key timelines, right? Yeah. Slide on that. Um, yeah. So this this kind of lays that out uh, of what what things are happening. So. Uh, the vendors have a choice to ask us questions, and we respond to them. So their response is back by April 3rd. Um, so, so that's how that part of the process will go. After that, uh, we will have our committee, a uh, very large number of people reviewing the RFP responses, the subject matter experts for their particular sections, uh, because it is a very large document. And, and, if, and if just the four of us were to sit down and do that, it might take us weeks and weeks to get that completed. And so we'll have a large number of people reviewing their specific parts of the RFP and giving up and using the scoring algorithms that are in place for that to, to generate those scores. Along with that, then, we're also scheduling demos so the vendors will come on site and demonstrate to staff the scripted demos that we have. Uh, so I don't know if you have another timeline on I that. I don't. I didn't. We'd, okay. I kind of stopped so, that. So those demos are scheduled in April and May. Uh, and so uh, we've got scripting that's due back uh, over the next week or two to complete the scripting that we'll have done that says... Dave, do you know what a script I means? Do people oh, know sorry. what a script is? So the scripted demo is we, we give the vendor a specific set of, of outcomes we want to see during the demonstration, so they have to perform... They show us how their system does those tasks. How they would take a patient through that yeah. specific so, so it's not so much about us saying, we need you to enter a CBC and then show us a result and then click on this and click on that, because we don't know how their system works. So we say we want to see how a provider can order a CBC and see a result. Show us what that workflow would work, work like for the provider. Because on an RFP, the answer might be, yes, we do that. We do that for a very simple interface for the physician to find the data. But when you see it, it might be, well, there's yeah. 37 clicks right. and on three different screens and two different logons to get that answer. And so that's why the demos become very important yeah, and why we script them. Right. right. So we can see so we can see how the vendors compare to doing the same, achieving the same outcome. So that's the task. So those scripted demos then are due in a couple of weeks, and the demos happen then in April and May. So we've got, and for the demos, there's a specific scoring process for that as well, scoring to the uh, to the demo. So we had some questions from staff when we talk about this. Well, does everybody come to the demo and get a vote? It's like, well, it's not so much a vote as is a, a rating. You get to do a rating and submit that into the process, and those scores will be tallied, and we'll determine what the scores are. So at the end of the process, there's a specific set of algorithms that uh, Jim and his company have developed around what's the weighting of all of that scoring that occurs mm -hmm. that adds up into a number, and then there, that number will then influence the decision of where we're at. Because there, there's parts of that that will say, well, this is the numerical value. Is that numerical value uh, with the, with the non-numeric items that we're having in this, the subjective values that we get through? Right? Talking to the people that have already used the system, what's it like for them? Uh, doing, doing the corporate site visits that we'll do, uh, where the executive team will meet with their executives and talk about what does a partnership look like? What does it mean for us to be a partner with you in delivering the system? You know, how easy is it to do business with you as opposed to uh, difficult to do business with you? But those are the kind of the, uh, the items that also go into that decision process, but which gets us to a, a leading vendor a decision in the in middle of June. Okay. So we expect that uh, we will continue that. We'll bring back that uh, that point of the process to the board to inform you what's happening all the way along the way. 
and then Jim will continue on the on the contract negotiation process. I'm guessing through uh, September, October, till we have a finalized contract uh, with one of the vendors, and then coming back in October or November for board approval of that uh, of signing that contract. That's what I see as the timeline. And David, how do you plug that process into budget planning? <clears throat> one of the uh, uh, results of this is going to be a timeline on required cash flow. And we build that into our um, long-term financial planning model so that we know. So we'll see that come June, that there's some some money there, regardless of what, what ultimately is selected, I suspect. Yeah, you, you might recall from the uh, planning session we've already done, we put a plug in there. Yeah, I do remember that. And we provided that to the uh, team and said, this is kind of what we think we can afford. And so we'll have to, part of this is going to be adjusting the cash flow to fit into what we think we can do. Okay. Would there be any difference between the vendors in terms of how those dollars are going to lay out over time? Potentially. Probably. Probably. Yeah. Okay. There's more flexibility. Certain vendors have more flexibility than others. And so if you're going to be looking at affordability, sustainability, functionality, all of those things are going to come together, right? Because, again, each of these systems is top-notch, right? There might be a, you know, a preference for one versus the other, but, the, but it's, it's the, you know, Android versus, you know, iPhone. It's similar to that. They don't have a lots of flash, no cash model. <laughs> so, and the other thing, just, just for your information, I, I, I didn't mention this earlier, but, but I have, you know, I'm still in, I'm, I think I'm now in year six with Los Angeles County going through this exact journey with them. Yeah. Everything from the strategy to the procurement mm -hmm. to the negotiation. I've been involved in every meeting on implementation, weekly meetings. Now we're involved in evolving, you know, kind of expanding the system to other things. So um, a good, um, it's provided a great uh, view of all the issues that you will face, right? Um, and, and then we had to come up with solutions. And, and I think you're going to have the same issue. Somebody asked about the physician resistance and adoption. And, you know, we had to go through change management. All those things are, are challenges, but there's there's approaches. But but that's the part where I said it's an investment. It, it, you can't, there, there is no system that any vendor has created that you just put in and it works, mm -hmm. right? Correct. I mean, it's just a, it's, it's a big organization. Well, compared to L.A., we should be a joyful release. <laughs> so, uh, what, what was the biggest surprise? Biggest surprise. Uh, I think with it. No, with, with yeah, LA. LA. Yeah, yeah. I just think it was the number and um, the number of issues that arose. Like just how many different things in different areas. Implementation wide um, or resistance wide or both. Uh, mostly during the implementation, in terms of you know just things that you you wouldn't even think of. Like you know, do we have the right approval for this kind of hire, not even dealing with the vendor, right? Do we have, can we hire the right people? Do we have the right slots in the organization? And, and if we don't, how do we get that? How do we get the right people? And how do we, you know, change um, some of the inherent, um, there's almost some built-in things that made it, it hard, you know, if, if we've been operating with four different hospitals with chief executive officers for five years, how do you, how do you all of a sudden say we're doing an enterprise and you're not making your own decisions. Those kinds of things were, were challenging. 
Well, I want to thank you for coming. Any board members, any other questions? You know, I hate to ask this because I came in late, but I, I came in on a tail end of an interoperability conversation. And, you know, I guess the question I have, looking at these systems that we're looking at, are there various levels of interoperability between other systems? Or, you know, if we were to choose one system over another, would there be any advantage in terms of being able to, you know, have some sort of community-wide medical record? Yeah, I, I think that's part of what we'll find in the RFP because our request is we want full interoperability with our trading partners. And so we'll see how the vendors respond and make that assessment of that. We'll then do that ranking okay. to say how do they score in this interoperability process. It's an important part of the RFP. Will we have some sort of demonstration of that as part of this? Or? Uh, I'm guessing that demonstration on interoperability will be the tell us who you're doing it with and, and we'll, we'll talk to them. Okay. So it will be that piece of it. But in terms of interoperability, they have to be, the other partner has to agree to let us do that. It's not just right, whether right, the right. systems are capable. And I have a question about whether or not each of these systems allows for our patients to have access mm -hmm. to some form of data on their progress so yeah. both of them do yeah another part of the RFP is how do you engage the patient in the care process okay. so what does that patient portal look like what 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 ability does the patient have to update their medical record with information the patient's contributing okay, okay. Uh, oh I just want to thank you and say that um, you know last spring I bought a house and we decided to make the downstairs room our bedroom and it did not come with a closet so <laughs> I, I'm building the closet and I'm paying for it so I'm really glad that you, you wrote that in <laughs> <laughs> thank you okay thank, uh, you. thank you for coming thank we'll you. move on uh, to our committee reports and dr. Zorthian do you have any reports um, I will make a report verbally which because we didn't have a written one and Mike and I decided this was probably the best thing to do since it's on the agenda I'm reporting on last month's QPSC which as usual we went through the credentialing and had a, a discussion about various um, new doctors coming into our organization and all three medical staffs and also uh, a, a short report on the peer review in each of the hospitals um, we had a discussion about some risk information, and then that all was in closed session. And then in open session, there were no policies uh, approved. We had a fairly extensive discussion about the draft of the plan for each of the, for the how quality will be presented to QPSC uh, throughout the year, and what are some of the things that we need to consider about that and then um, a short bit of information or discussion about how best to bring quality issues to the full board and whether just some stuff about that and we'll we'll look at that um, a more final version of that plan next month okay thank you um, we'll move on to and you have uh, the written communication report in your packet and uh, rather than move to closed session right now, I'm going to uh, ask if there are any public comment, and I have one. So, uh, Ann Schuler, before we move in, I'll ask public comment, and then we can ask for it again. You're welcome. 
This is uh, Very Brief, I'm Ann Schuyler with SEIU Local 10 to 1, and I'm here simply to thank Dunette, uh, in particular, for her work in resolving a number of issues around staffing for RNs. It has just been a tremendous effort on her part. It has made a huge difference in the uh, uh, working lives of these folks who uh, are working hard. And so we want to thank you very, very much. And have fun. <laughs> Thank you Thank for you. that. Uh, we had an HR meeting yesterday, uh, and she was again thanked for her hard work in this organization. Yes. Public service is a wonderful thing, and it's a rare thing to so Yes, and she Thank is you. definitely committed. Okay, any other public comment? I don't see it. Then uh, we are going to adjourn to uh, closed session. The board met in closed session to meet with labor negotiator and public employee evaluation. Uh, no action was taken, and the meeting is adjourned.